If you have a Bible, could you please take it and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we will be covering verses 18 through 30 today. As you look at the structure of this upper room discourse, the upper room discourse itself has not technically begun, it wouldn't seem, uh, until we get to verse 31, and it's when Judas had gone out that Jesus then begins to instruct his disciples, and it is the exit of Judas that is what we'll be talking about from God's Word today. Uh, after a tragedy of some kind occurs, maybe a, a terrorist attack or a shooting or a car accident or a pandemic or any sort of tragedy we might think of, we often ask the question, how did this happen? How did this happen? We want to know what were the factors that led to this terrible event. And there's rarely one answer. Instead, there, there were many people involved, many circumstances that, that happened. There were mistakes that were made. There were innocent actions that contributed to the tragedy. And then there were things that, were, that are just nearly unexplainable that led to this terrible thing happening. We ask that question, how did this happen, in an effort to sort of make sense of something that doesn't make sense to us, something that goes against all of our logic, or something that just hurts us so deeply that we, we ask, why? why? Why did this happen? How did it happen? But we also ask that question, how did this happen, so that we can attempt somehow to prevent it from ever happening again. Uh, the death of Jesus was a tragedy. It was a triumph, we know, because it his death purchased our salvation, but as we, we look back at the events surrounding his death, we can see it as a tragedy, and we can ask, how did this terrible thing happen? What led to a rejection of Jesus as the Savior that was so strong that people were willing to kill him? As with other tragedies, there's, there's no one answer. Uh, but the Gospel writers give us a picture of the many moving parts that resulted in Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. In our passage today, it doesn't reveal all of the factors, but it does help us to see the roles that, that Satan and Judas and Jesus himself played in the events that led to his death. And as we see these roles that the, these individuals played, it helps us to make sense, I think, of the cross in some specific ways. And it can also help us to make sense of, of some of the pain and the betrayal and the difficulties that we too face as we follow Jesus in this life. And I think too it causes us to specifically, specifically look at the, the betrayal of Judas and have a resolve to say, I don't want this to ever happen to me or to someone that I love. Taking all those things together, maybe we could summarize this passage like this. In the darkness of night, the love and control of Jesus can strengthen our faith. In the darkness of night, and we'll see that theme here in this passage. In the darkness of night, the love and control of Jesus can strengthen our faith. There's most certainly darkness in this world, and there's even darkness in our hearts. We don't like to look into the darkness for very long. But there are some times when we are forced to think about evil and to think about its power, 
and its place in our world and in our lives. And as we consider the, the darkness of this particular hour and of the actions of Judas, it helps us to understand why sadness and, and evil and betrayal and death come into our own lives. And it gives us hope and, and faith as we see how and why such terrible things happen to us, as we consider how and why they happened to Jesus. So again, the truth of God's word shows us that in the darkness of night, the love and control of Jesus can strengthen our faith. We're going to pick up the story in John chapter 13 in verse 18. We stopped in the middle of Jesus speaking. He has just washed the disciples' feet. He's called them to to follow him in this act. He says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Look at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, Who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. In the darkness of night, the love and control of Jesus can strengthen our Faith, as we consider how this tragic event happened, let's begin with the most important factor that we can hold on to in understanding not only Jesus' crucifixion, but also the terrible things that might come into our own lives, and that's the foreknowledge of Jesus. The foreknowledge of Jesus. Foreknowledge meaning that Jesus knew beforehand exactly what was going to happen to him. Uh, In John 10, 18, Jesus says as clearly as possible that he knows he's going to die and rise again. We find these words there. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That verse, along with the predictions that Jesus made about his hour of glorification, and so many other passages, including today's, teach us regarding his foreknowledge, first of all, that the foreknowledge of Jesus confirms his control. The foreknowledge of Jesus confirms his control. In William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar is, is attacked and killed by a group of senators, one of whom was Caesar's friend named Brutus. And upon seeing him among his assassins, Caesar, in William Shakespeare's play, utters 
those famous final words where he says, et tu, Brute, meaning you too, Brutus. He reveals his, his surprise that his friend would betray him, but not just his, his surprise, but he also reveals his ignorance about Brutus's true feelings up until that point. He thought Brutus was his friend until he saw him there, ready to kill him. Now here with Jesus, we see the same emotions, or similar emotions maybe to Caesar's, but not surprise. Jesus is not surprised. All the way back in John chapter 6, Jesus said to the disciples that one of them would betray him. He knew it. And here the narrative makes it clear at many points that Jesus knew exactly what Judas was up to, even pointing him out to John. The text is, is at pains to show that Jesus was not a victim of circumstance or a helpless target that couldn't evade the grasp of, of his enemies. He was in control, not only knowing who would betray him, but even sending him out at the appointed time, directing him as it were, what you're going to do, Jesus, do quickly. One commentary says of all this, Jesus's foreknowledge enhances his credibility and later on the credibility of the disciples. The cross was not a huge accident. It took place according to the Father's plan and with Jesus's full knowledge. So we see the control of Jesus that's revealed by his foreknowledge. But note that his control of the situation doesn't mean that Jesus is cold and detached from it. Uh, next, we find the foreknowledge of Jesus reveals his love. The foreknowledge of Jesus reveals not only his control, but also his love. I think it's hard to wrap our minds around just how well these men knew one another how much time they had spent together, and how those shared experiences of, of joy and, and, and wonder and confusion, how these things drew them together into a deep bond of friendship and love and camaraderie. You might think about your closest friends. You might even think about a family member, maybe even a spouse. Consider the depth of those relational ties and then imagine the pain that would be caused if, if that person betrayed you. Betrayed you to the point of death. Delivered you over to death. I think that's why Jesus quotes Psalm 41 in verse 18. It's a psalm of David where he, he laments those who are working against him and rejoicing at his failure. And the climax of the psalm comes in verse 9 when he says, Even my close friend whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David says, this, this friend that I, I trusted, that we ate food together. We, we were friends. You betrayed me. And in a similar way, though, surely it's different for the one who knew the hearts of everyone. Jesus was betrayed by a friend that, that he loved, a friend that he had just washed the feet of and a friend to this whole group such that when Jesus says that one of them would betray him, none of them assumed it was Judas. Amazingly, the other gospel writers tell us they all assumed it was them. They said, is it me, Lord? To a, to a man, they all said, is it me? But none of them immediately said, oh, that's definitely Judas. No. Consider the rest of the scene he, there at the table. In verse 21, John says that Jesus was troubled in spirit, which is another indication, among other things, I think, of his love for Judas and for the disciples. 
near the forefront of his mind is the fact that his glorification will mean leaving his friends, which is why he's going to spend so much time speaking to them about how they can live in the midst of his absence. But the trouble in his spirit is also over the fact that Judas is going to betray him. His friend is going to turn him over to death. I think here then we see why Hebrews tells us in our assurance of forgiveness that Jesus is the true high priest who is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. When we are betrayed or deceived by others, when we are manipulated and lied to, we can come to a Savior who understands what we are feeling. There's few things that are more painful than when someone lies to you, especially a friend, or when someone deceives you or, or manipulates you. None of us want that. And, and it hurts us. And when our spirits are troubled by the way that others treat us, we can come to a friend in Christ who has felt those feelings. What's amazing about this friend, though, is that he doesn't join us in bad-mouthing our enemies, does he? That's often what friends do when we say, this person lied to me, they betrayed to me. Our friends will come along and say, well, what a terrible person they are. But when we come to Christ, he feels that feeling with us. But then what does he do? He calls us down a path of loving our enemies, even in the midst of that betrayal. Well, when Jesus reveals that one of them will betray him, the room is, is silent. Peter who desperately wants to know who it is, is still socially aware enough to not just blurt out the question. And so uh, he motions to John. He finds some way to, to let John know that he wants to ask this, this question of him. And he motions, we, we say John, but he's noted here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. Of course he did, but John was so aware of Jesus' love for him and so shaped by it that it's, it's what defined him for the rest of his life. Your name is one of the most clear things that defines who you are. If someone says, who are you? What's the first thing you say? Well, you say your name. That's who you are. And John chose to forsake his given name and be defined instead by the love that Jesus had for him. Who am I? I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what's most important about me. As we look at the scene, it would seem that John is reclining at the table next to Jesus in such a way that he could sort of just lay back and his head would be at Jesus' chest. And, and from that close position, he quietly asks Jesus, who is it, Lord? Jesus tells him that it's the one that he's going to give a piece of bread after dipping it. And he must have said it quiet enough, I think, that only John heard. You remember Peter is later in the garden going to cut off a man's ear to try to defend Jesus. So I think if Peter heard that it was Judas, he probably would have jumped across the table or done something rash. Uh, and, the, and also the, the disciples revealed that they didn't know that it was Judas when he finally gets up. But John here reveals it to us so that we can believe, so that we can believe in the foreknowledge of Jesus, that Jesus was in complete control. We've said that John was likely sitting at Jesus' right hand. It's hard to say where the rest of the disciples were. The only other person that we can make a guess at is Judas. Because Judas must have been close enough for Jesus to hand this piece of bread to him. And if that's the case, then Judas was likely at, Je at Jesus' left hand, which was considered the seat of honor in that sort of a meal. 
We read in verse 1 that Jesus loved his own who were in the world to the end. He loved them to the fullest extent possible. And Jesus loved Judas, honored him by washing his feet, and then by placing him at the seat of honor at this meal. He loved him all the way to the end. And the disciples felt no hint of animosity between Jesus and, and Judas. When he said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly, there's no indication of Jesus being angry with, with Judas, such that the disciples assumed that, he, they just assumed he was going to go buy some groceries or that he was going to perform some act of generosity. I think even Jesus releasing Judas into the night feels like an act of love, doesn't it? He's, he's giving him an out. What you're going to do, Judas, do it quickly. Go ahead and leave. And yet for all these acts of love, we find that, that Judas's betrayal was certain. He takes the bread from Jesus and Satan enters into him. We're going to talk about the influence of Satan in a moment, but notice just one final thing about Jesus' foreknowledge. We've seen that it confirms his control. Jesus' foreknowledge reveals his love. And finally, the foreknowledge of Jesus strengthens our faith. The foreknowledge of Jesus, the reality of it, strengthens our faith. Jesus did not have to reveal that he would be betrayed or that he knew who it was. He could have kept all of that a secret. But instead, he predicted that one of his own would sell him out. Why? Was this just some sort of a flex to reveal his omniscience? No, I don't think so. Verse 19 says that he did it. Why? So that his followers would believe that Jesus is the I am. Look at that in verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Literally, that I am. That phrase that he has kept saying all throughout John's gospel. The entire scene bears the marks of an eyewitness account. And we remember that John's reason for writing in conjunction with Jesus' reasoning here is that all of this is done so that we would believe that Jesus is the I am, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. And this prediction of Judas's betrayal was meant to help them and us believe. Here's what's interesting, I think. that The foreknowledge of Jesus often makes people struggle with their faith. It raises all of these questions. We wrestle with God's sovereignty and our free will. We, we wonder if Judas had a choice or when Jesus knew that he was betray, uh, the betrayer. And these are all hard questions and questions we should wrestle with. But the, at the end of the day, the foreknowledge of Jesus about Judas's betrayal and even about his own approaching death and resurrection are not meant to undercut our faith. They're meant to give us a solid foundation. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. And he walked into it on purpose for our sakes. So therefore, we can trust him. We can trust him with our eternal souls, knowing that he has gone into death and come out on the other side according to his own plan so that he can offer us forgiveness and life through faith in him. His foreknowledge of his own betrayal and death also strengthen our faith as we go through difficulty and betrayal and, and pain and death in our lives. He is not unaware of what is happening to us but he is a loving savior in full control, working all things together for good for those who love him. The God who sees and controls the future is our God and our Father, so we have no reason to doubt him, but every reason to trust him and believe that what others mean for evil, he can turn for good. We've been hearing a lot about this from Joshua, even from Lazarus. Jesus is continuing to help them see he is in control 
and his control causes us to be comforted and strengthened in our faith. So don't let the foreknowledge of an omnipotent God shake your faith. Let it ground and bolster and strengthen your faith, knowing that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases and that it was his good pleasure to send his son to be betrayed and crucified for our salvation. Having seen the foreknowledge of Jesus, let me give you a second factor that led to this tragedy, and that's the influence of Satan. The influence of Satan. Back in verse 2, we see that the devil had put it into Judas's heart to betray him, and then in verse 27, we're told that Satan actually entered into him. Uh, we don't have time to go into a theology of how demons and Satan function in this world, but what is obvious is that Satan and the forces of evil can and do have influence on us and can even work through us. We're, we're reminded that this is not just the story of a friend betraying a friend. It's different than Judas, uh, than um, Julius Caesar and, and Brutus. This is, this is different because it's the story of a cosmic battle between good and evil that continues today, though the reality of the cross points to the sure and the ultimate defeat of darkness. But for now, darkness is given an opportunity. Do you notice that final sentence in verse 30? And it was night. I've been wondering about Jesus's continual illustration, if you've noticed this, about working while it is still light. Have you noticed that? We got to work while it's still light, disciples. And I think that maybe this sentence brings it together a little bit. Let me know what you think. In, in John 9, 4, before healing the man born blind, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Then in John eleven nine, 9, before leaving to raise Lazarus, he says again to the disciples, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. And in John 12, 35 to 36, he says, the light is is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. But now, it's night. Night has come, John indicates it so clearly, and it was night. In Luke's gospel, Luke 22, 53, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, he says to those authorities that came, he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, in the light, as it were, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In John 19, 10 to 11, after Jesus will not answer him, Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Did Satan have influence in this situation? Was he wielding power during this hour of darkness, during this night? Yes, yes he was. But, it was all under the sovereign control of God. Like the story of Job, Satan was allowed to go as far as God would allow him. And in that story, it was such that, that, that Satan could not kill Job. 
And here too, Satan was allowed to wield his power over Judas and, and beyond. But unlike Job, the life of Jesus was not off limits in this circumstance. So was Satan a part of what led to the betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus? Yes. And is Satan also at work in this world, even in the events of our lives? Yes. But it is all under God's control. I've heard Alistair Begg say it this way. He talks about Satan being a, a dog who, you know, or maybe we could think of him like a wolf. He's a wolf, but he's on a leash. And that the leash is staked into the ground at the foot of the cross. And he can only go as far as the Father allows until the final day when he's cast away from our presence forever. Until then, we trust that, that God controls him and so we sing, though this world with devils filled has threatened to undo us, we will not fear because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So I sing the whole thing because it all applies. <laughs> we could go back and look at a mighty fortress, those lyrics, because it reminds us that, yes, Satan is at work in this world, but God is in control of all things. Notice then this final factor in Jesus' death and and that's the choice of Judas. The choice of Judas. What a complicated character, isn't he? I don't pretend that we're going to answer all your questions about Judas um, today. But in the midst of the foreknowledge of God and the influence of Satan, we know that Judas made a choice. We can wonder why he did what he did. Was it purely for the money? Was he, was he upset at Jesus' lack of action to take the crown that was offered to him? Was it a desire for a position amongst the Pharisees? I don't know. Could have been any of those things. Could have been a combination of all those things. Could have been none of those things. But at the end of the day, he made a decision to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. I think Judas reminds us of the darkness that's in our hearts and that apart from God's light shining in by the renewal of the Spirit, we will turn away from Christ. We will, we will choose betrayal. That's the story of, of humanity since the garden. We naturally sneak into the night and rebel against our Creator. That's what we always want to do. And even we who have been amongst the people of God as, as Judas was with with Jesus and the apostles, even we can be drawn away into the cares of this world. With that said, I, I think that there's a, a comparison here between, not sure what's going on out there. <laughs> uh, I see, okay. I don't know what the difference is between, I, I, I think that, that um, Peter forms a contrast to Judas to help us understand a little bit what's going on here. So I think Peter, in his denying of Christ, forms this, this contrast. So John's going to write later in 1 John 2.19, I think he could have said this of, about Judas. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. Why? But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Maybe it sounds confusing, but it's pretty simple and, and straightforward, isn't it? There are those who look like they are a part of us, that they are a part of God's people, but they are 
not. And it's not that when they leave, they lose their salvation, but that they never had it to begin with. And that would seem to be the case with Judas, that he never really believed. But of Peter, I think we apply the next verse, 1 John 2, 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Peter was a true child of God, so he could not ultimately fall away. And the evidence of the difference between Judas and Peter is repentance. True repentance. It is sorrow over sin, a willingness to confess it. If we are outside of Christ, the the choice of Judas, as it were, is before us. Will we turn away from Christ? Will we walk away from him? Will we reject him? Will we reject the gospel? Or will we respond to his clear displays of love for us? Have you put your hope in Jesus for salvation, knowing that he willingly laid down his life in your place to pay for your sins? If not, then the choice of Judas is still in front of you to walk away from Christ for something else. But I think there's a confidence if we are in Christ, then there is always the hope of restoration, which is what we see with Peter and his denial of Jesus. The Christian is not free from sin, but the Christian freely repents of his or her sin. sin. What we come to Jesus, as we saw last week, as those who are clean, but those who need our feet washed through confession. I think the choice that the Christian makes is found in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's just identify the different parts of this, okay? Truly, I say to you, disciples, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Who, who are the ones that are sent? I think that's the disciples. Whoever receives you guys and the message that you give is receiving me, receiving Jesus. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, who is the Father. There's this change. The, the, the Father has sent the Son, and those who receive the Son are then sent by him, and those who receive the ones that are sent by the Son are receiving Jesus, and the chain would all go back, and then they receive the Father as well. If we have received Christ through faith, we have received the Father, and we are children of God, secure in the grasp of Jesus and the Father, like we see in John 10. We are those who proclaim this then to others. Judas sought his own interest, but the followers of Jesus here, we see already, are to proclaim the gospel to others such that those who receive us and the word that we proclaim receive Jesus. Do you see in verse 20 an echo of the Great Commission to go and make disciples and to baptize those who believe? It's a reminder that God's plan of redemption includes us proclaiming the good news so that others might believe. Think about that. Today we celebrate the faith of our brother Nathan as he follows the Lord in baptism. And he reminds all of us who are in Christ that once we were dead in our sins and we would have betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, probably less. But by the power of the gospel, God has made us alive so that we can follow him, so that we can proclaim his message of salvation to all who will hear Will we do that perfectly? No, but we will repent when we fall and Christ will restore us. And we do it in the midst of a world that's often very dark. 
in the midst of a world where we're betrayed and where death is always at our door. And yet in the darkness of night, the love and the control of Jesus can strengthen our faith. So in the midst of seeing Jesus betrayed in this hour of darkness, seeing the power of Satan, we see this foreknowledge of Christ that fills us with confidence and can strengthen our faith. And I pray that it would do that. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Father, we thank you that you willingly sent your son to die for us. We thank you for the the hope of the gospel that's found through faith in Jesus. But thank you that if we are in you, you always call us back to repentance. Lord, I pray you'd be with us now as we celebrate the fact that Nathan has been called by you as your child and that he desires to walk in your ways. Would you be with us now in this moment? I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.